Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Campus brands belong to a variety of stakeholders, students, faculty, and staff, of course, but also alumni, donors, the surrounding community, and many others. Today, I'm joined by Teresa Valerio Parrott and Aaron Hennessy of TVP Communications to discuss the role of campus leadership in communication in challenging times and how presidents can better navigate the tricky landscape of campus discourse. If you could both just take a minute to introduce yourselves, what you do, what kind of work you specialize in uh, for our listeners. Aaron, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I'm vice president at TVP Communications, coming up on my eighth anniversary in the role. And with our agency, I do a good deal of internal messaging, um, strategic communications planning, a lot of crisis communications and media relations training, and along with Teresa, lead our crisis communications work. My career has bounced back and forth from higher education to state government to federal government. Uh, So I'm excited to have this conversation today because I think it's a topic that isn't given enough attention either in state houses or on our campuses, to be frank. Teresa. I'm Teresa Valerio Parrott, and I'm the founder of TVP Communications. Um, This week actually is our 10th anniversary, so super excited for that. Thank you for celebrating that with us. Um, We, as Erin mentioned, do um, proactive and reactive communications. And increasingly, I would say, Kevin, I think that the topics that we are being asked to address include policy issues that are outside of the institution's control. Um, And my uh, career Uh, focus when I first started in higher education um, was policy work. So my graduate degree, my master's is in public administration, and I worked on higher education policy at the institutional level for a number of years before moving into communications. I think it's a natural path, as Erin mentioned, uh, working on Capitol Hill and and communications, and now working and doing what we do, um, that we often are in that world that is um, between how higher education operates and how the world exists. Um, and I think that's really where policy comes into all of this. Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information, but oftentimes a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback, the site search product by Squiz, changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit squiz.net, that's S-Q-U-I-Z dot net, to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. I think that the relationship between state legislation and and higher ed uh, cannot be overstated. I mean, there are obviously clear funding, cultural, et cetera, uh, you know, consequences or benefits uh, based on that relationship. And so I want to dive in uh, our first question. And I'm thinking about all these states, especially recently, but over the past few years, a number of years, we've seen like bathroom bills in North Carolina, bans on vaccine mandates in Texas, uh, allowing guns in, on campus in other states, uh, threats to student voting. Um, there are just so many, so many issues, cultural, societal issues that are kind of in play at, at the legislative level. Uh, meanwhile, there are all these schools who are trying to re- uh, recruit more diverse students and more female students in STEM and all these other things. And what we know about Gen Z, 
themselves and also what we know about diverse Gen Z audiences, it's got to be so difficult for schools to communicate their stance or their philosophy in the context of the state legislation, of the state legislation, can you talk a little bit about what you see in the marketplace in this in this regard, um, in state legislation and higher ed communications? So I think that's a question that I'll answer more holistically, and then I'll talk about it a little bit more personally as well. And what I would say is I think it comes back to what we always um, give as our core. Um, audience approach, and that is what is it that are driving students' choices? And for so many of our students, um, they may not be thinking about going outside of their state, if it's red or if it's blue, because they're looking at cost and they're looking at convenience, and they're looking to see what's in their best interest financially and from an opportunity standpoint. So it really is a, a, a slice of our audience that we're really talking about that has the luxury of looking across the country and saying, is this something that really impacts me and therefore I will choose a different path or I will make a choice based on what that opportunity means for me? And really that means we're talking about our full pay students that are really most impacted here. Um, and what I would say is uh, on a personal front, uh, I have a Gen Z student who is in college in Texas. Uh, she's in Houston, Texas, and she's at Rice, and I'm super proud of her. And I would say that she was looking at two things. What are the opportunities available to her? And the second was, um, and how could she make a difference? So her major is social policy. And if you want to make a difference in the social policy world right now, you go where some of these um, bills are being passed and where there is work to be done, because that's where you see your fit and your opportunity. I'm in a doctoral program in Texas as well. Coincidentally, I'm going to SMU for my doctorate degree. And what I would say is it goes back to um, what was in the best interest of the student. And it was the convenience and it was the offering and it was the timeline. So I think there are so many different ways that we need to slice and dice this. And it, it really does depend on how we're thinking about our students and their opportunities. I think we also, and I'm sure we'll dig into this, need to just make that distinction between public and private institutions and the flexibility that private institutions have to, I don't want to say ignore, but to set aside some of the legislation. And, and they are, you know, again, when you talk about privilege, um, and I think that's such an important point, Teresa, the private institutions within these states have the opportunity or the privilege to set aside some of the more problematic uh, pieces of legislation to a greater or lesser extent. Obviously, at a public institution, um, there's going to be heightened sensitivity and, and obviously a larger obligation to follow the exact letter of the exact law. Um, but oftentimes, private institutions aren't within that scope. I think that's an excellent distinction uh, in the public and private. One of the things I often think about um, is the environments that these policies can create when they're trying, when they're trying to attract, basically new taxpayers, right? Like the idea of attracting someone from out of state to your institution, whether public or private, is hopefully that the you you know the the place where you are located is attractive enough to that person that they stay and build a life and create a family, etc. These policies um, can sometimes make that somewhat difficult, and so I'm curious about what you've seen in your work. Um, around university administrators advocating for the interests of their campus populations when it comes to these kinds of policies? I think that's such an important point that we're, we're educating taxpayers. And we always used to lean on the statistic um, about 
the vast majority, and I forget which percentage it was, the vast majority of college graduates stay within a 50-mile radius of their institution once they graduate. Having been raised as a professional in New Jersey, which at the time was the greatest exporter of college students in the country, uh, that was certainly something that was very, very present for us. Um, I think what we see, and I'll be interested to hear your perspective, Teresa, but what we see is often institutions leaning on the mission um, and saying, you know, to the Tressa's earlier point, we're bringing students here to learn how to both live together and receive an academic education, but we're also bringing them here to prepare future citizens. And so um, the students who do come to a state where there are challenging political positions being bandied about, um, we are educating our students how to fight those, how to push back on them, how to seek to influence the legislative process. It's not um, for no reason that we do huge voter registration drives uh, early in, in each academic year um, so that we can give our students the tools they need to be uh, participants in our democracy on the state level, on the local level, on the national level. I know that that in itself can raise some some hackles within state legislatures because there are assumptions made about how our students are voting. Uh, but I think it's it, we see folks very often pivot to mission and say, what we are here to do is train the next generation of participants in democracy. Part of that is voting. Part of that is engaging in um, the legislative process wherever you live, whether it's on your campus or at home. Um, and we really, I think, need to continue to push that um, perhaps even more than we have to date. And I'm going to piggyback on that because I feel as if over the last, I would say, five years, we've seen an increase in the number of pieces that we've worked with presidents and senior leaders to write. And that's the, we live in a blue space in a red state, or we live in a blue space in um, an increasingly red state. So it might be a purple state that is moving red or feels red or is perceived as red. Um, and we're writing and placing a number of those locally and, and nationally as well. And it really is tied to where they recruit students and how they want to be thought of. Um, and I think that's a real uh, push and pull that our public and private institutions are seeing across a number of different communities. Um, and I think that's an important realization for us to have as well as, is what is our perception, right? It goes back to brand, how are audiences perceiving us? And then what is the reality behind that? Because in some of the states, to be honest, um, that blue dot is trying to say, we're a little more purple than you think um, because they are recruiting students from across their state and they need to make sure that all students will feel that they are at home. Others are kind of talking about concentric circles. So we may be a purple dot, but there's a bluer dot around us or whatever, however they're looking at those colors um, because they need to recruit faculty and staff to also live in these areas. And for some of these very, very blue dots, <laughs> Um, you know, faculty and staff of color may not see themselves in that community. Ideologically, they may be blue, but looking around the community, they may not see their fit. So how are they starting to talk about the greater community so that people can find a space where they feel comfortable and they can thrive personally as well? And that's a significant shift that I'm seeing over the last number of years that I don't know that we were as much talking about that maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah, and Tress, I think I think that's so smart, and I, I'm going to sort of raise the curtain on some of the conversations you and I have late in the afternoon when we're, um, you know, sort of winding down from a tough day. I think we're seeing it, an increase in presidents who are willing to stand up and say, while this issue verges on 
political, I'm willing to take a stand because it is in, is in alignment with mission. It is in alignment with what we do as an academic institution. Importantly, it's in alignment with how we position ourselves in the marketplace. Right. Um, that we are saying this is a place for activists. This is a place for students who are engaged in the big questions and the big issues. We still, I don't think, could field a football team of these presidents who are willing to, to sidle up to that political line that presidents have avoided for so long. But there are more and more of them. And they are, I think, increasingly drawing attention. I don't think it's a coincidence that a number of them are black presidents who are willing to say, if I'm going to lead an institution that is either uh, an HBCU or serves a large number of black and Hispanic and other minority students, I'm going to have to engage in some of these issues that perhaps some of my white colleagues um, aren't comfortable stepping up to and, and engaging with. And I think that is um, an interesting shift. I think it's one that deserves some more coverage and some more study. Um, and I'd love to read longer pieces about that shift, but I do think we're seeing more comfort in that area. And I think it's important. And, and to that point, Erin, I agree. And I'm glad that you're sharing some of our, our end of the day talks. <laughs> Here's one more that we also talk about because it ties directly into this. Um, we are hearing fewer and fewer presidents using the term student activists, like it's a four letter word. There was a point where every time we heard student activists, it was a negative. We still hear that, um, but we don't hear that nearly to the degree that we used to. And we've always encouraged presidents to honor that and to really celebrate it because it is um, a draw for your students. And if you have student activists, I can guarantee that is infused in your brand. I can guarantee that's infused in how people think of your institution. And I'm so pleased that it's... Um, less frequent that we have to kind of rally presidents to that point, that student activists are to be celebrated. And let's talk about what they're bringing to our attention and what they're telling us rather than assuming that it's an us versus them type of environment. I could not agree with that point anymore. I love what you just said there. I think, I mean, when you think about where so many revolutions have taken place or were born or participated in. A lot of that is on college campuses. You think about Kent, you think about all these places where there have been the, this activation of people and passion and rights, et cetera. Um, I think of, when I think of college, I think of those kinds of things as well as the academics and it's, it's all the other things. So how could we not talk about the last couple of years, especially in this, in this conversation around you know, the kinds of communications that were kind of thrown into the world by college presidents, either in states that had, you know, red leanings, deep or were deep red. Um, can you talk about like what you saw and what your process is to like meet with a president who says, I believe in these things, but we have an audience and we live in a state that might not receive what I want to say well. Like, can you talk about what that looks like in your work? So when you raised that, Kevin, I instantly thought about the weekend um, that the Muslim ban was put in place. And we had waves of protests at airports across the country and lawyers flocking to international arrival terminals to assist people who were arriving in this country to utter chaos. And because of what we do and who I am, I sat and watched all of this unfold on Twitter. And I watched this statement start to roll out from college presidents. And for a while there was retweeting a number of them. It was interesting to see who was first 
and I don't remember off the top of my head exactly which institution, I think it was a large public R1 institution was one of the first to, to issue a statement from the president, not just you know, the University of Phil in the Blank is concerned and, and monitoring this, but an actual statement from a person. And the first couple were very interesting and very powerful and very impactful. And then it was, you could just watch the whole dialogue turn a corner when all of the performative bandwagon, oh shit, we better get one out too, because this institution down the road or this um, peer institution or this aspirational institution has one out. And Tressa and I spend a lot of time talking with institutions about when you're going to issue a statement and when you're not. Is this a world event that's aligned with your mission that's going to impact a large swath of your students? Is this something that is directly germane to what you do as, a, as an institution? And you could see very quickly, you know, they shifted right to very canned language. We're very concerned. This is a serious matter. Um, and, and you could see the, the institutions that were tweeting from a place of this impacts us and our students, and our researchers today, to the presidents that were probably being pressured by activist students on campus to say something. Um, and it was a very stark distinction. And that's sort of the, where we spend a lot of time having these conversations is what do you have to say that is going to move this forward? How does this impact the institution directly? And can we speak to that? in a statement instead of saying, we're very concerned. Um, we have no tolerance for, we take this very seriously. Um, and oftentimes presidents will set that advice aside and say, but I have to say something. And, and I think that is when the presidential voice is undermined. And it's very clear, I think, to, to people who observe the industry closely when that happens. Um, Aaron usually brings people along through logic and I yell at people. And here's where I yell at people. And that is... <laughs> At the point that you are no longer authentic, right? At the point that this is performative, please don't. <laughs> please don't because you're not helping the conversation. At the point that I take your statement and I put it into Google and everybody else's statement comes up, then also please don't. <laughs> this has to be something that you believe in. This has to be something that you are advocating for. And this has to be willing, it has to be something that you're willing to put out there even though you're a little bit scared. <laughs> and if you're waiting until it's too safe of a moment and the moment has passed, you actually do yourself more harm than being one who leads because this is the right thing to do and your campus community expects to hear you talking about it. Um, yeah. I also have, and Erin has, um, we've had presidents in the past that I warned them about becoming town criers as well, right? You can't be Hey, there's a red flag over here. Hey, did you see this? Hey, we're really concerned about that. You have to pick and choose very carefully in today's world. What is it that you're willing to take on because you're doing something about it? It's not mm -hmm. just enough to say we're worried and we take this seriously. And so what? And if we don't have that passion behind it, um, I always ask presidents either to dig a little deeper, and Erin and I co-wrote a piece about this recently, dig a little deeper, make sure you have something to say, or really think about whether or not this is the right time. Because as much as that's an external public statement, it 100% is a gut check for your internal community about where you stand and what your leadership means. So we should not have any false illusions about what this could be from a good standpoint and what this might be if you are performative or this isn't something that you're actually willing to move forward. 
Yeah, I'd far rather see a president take the time to sit and check in with their director of international programs, to check in with faculty members, to check in with student leaders and say, how is everybody doing and what do you need from the institution? Then to see them sit down and come up with yet another 75 to 100 word statement that is just going to be, you know, contained in a Twitter wrap up in a in one of the trade publications on Monday morning. I think statement is fine. Action is more important. Um, I admittedly am getting goosebumps from this conversation. <laughs> and every time I re-record one of these episodes, something someone says something. It's like, this isn't revolutionary, but it sounds revolutionary for higher ed, mm-hmm. uh, which will, I think, will just continue to be the story. But like, I think about some of the comments and messages or statements I saw last year after George Floyd and um, the ones you could tell were just participating and the ones that were passionate. Right. Right. I think that 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 is a very, very easy thing to tell. And with the generation that's coming into college now, like they are savvy, especially around messages like they can like suss out in authenticity in a heartbeat. And so I think about like because a higher ed brand belongs to so many different people and that the incoming classes of freshmen or first years are so markedly different than the aging alums who when you know, when you go to a college, the image of that college stick like that's how it is it stays in your brain like that and like you're kind of like bristle at any sort of evolution that the institution might make because this is not the way i had it here but as the world changes so does people's responses leaders responses to what are what's happening in the world and so i'm curious about your perspectives around how you thread the needle between a 70 year old alum and a an 18-year-old freshman who have very different expectations around the communication around societal and cultural issues. I think we're seeing those generational divides pretty significantly. And I would add another middle. Um, and I think that's our faculty and staff um, who are very vocal on social media, have great relationships with our students. And it feels to me some of their concerns overlap and some of them don't. Um, and I think we need to be listening very carefully to what they're saying as well. And I think one of the things that is important is that it's never safe to be a leader. That's part of why you're hired. Um, and there are moments that require leadership. And you're going to tick people off. It's going to happen. And it's not as easy as a calculation of what's the safest group to tick off and what costs us the least amount of money. Um, going back to what Aaron said, it's tied to mission. It's tied to ethos. It's tied to where your leadership is taking that institution. Because if you take the safe road on some of these topics, I would start to question if I were a student, are they taking the safe road on the value of the education for that institution and how they're approaching innovation in education and all of the different topics that we know are popping on campuses and everybody wants to say that they're leading right now, right? If you're gonna say that you're leading these areas, you have to take on the spectrum and pick your battles. You can't take on everything or you're gonna spread yourself too thinly, but be smart about all of this. You're not going to please everybody. And one of those other, other duties as assigned is that you don't get to be liked. That's just how it is. People go into presidencies thinking, I'm going to find, I'm going to be the one who's liked. I'm going to be the president who um, everybody thinks back and, and just views so warmly. You may or may not be, but instead you should be doing what the moment expects of you. Short and long term, what does your institution need? And that's entirely different than how do I maintain being liked? Yeah, I mean, here's another Tressa and Aaron 
4.30 p.m. conversation. There are so many presidents who are in the position right now that I don't believe are, are suited to this moment. And I feel for presidents who are early in their tenures, who have worked throughout an entire career to rise through the ranks of academic leadership, who have gotten to this moment, to this position, they have applied, they have gone into this. To Teresa's point, they think they're going to be the one that has the building named for them because they're so beloved. And in the speaker series, there's always a speaker series. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And they get here and it's an absolute soul-deadening siege to run these institutions, particularly in the last five years. I would go back to the recession of 08 and say, you know, from 08, 09 on, there's not enough money in the world to get me to be a college president. Uh, but certainly in the last 10 years, this job has become nearly impossible. And there are people who are in the pipeline who have been working toward this end goal, who all along have been saying, this is going to be it, the culmination of all of this work. They get to the job and what the job requires now is not what they were trained to do. And it's, it's got to be personally very difficult to grapple with that internally for yourself. But I think we need to have, start having that conversation more publicly because these institutions are fragile, particularly the small liberal arts, small religious affiliated. Um, they are fragile and they cannot withstand six or eight years of a president saying, you know, am I, should I, can I, do I want to? And I think it's so hard for these folks that have excelled throughout their careers to get to a point where they, where they can say, I'm not good at this. I don't have the skill set for what this moment requires. And the best thing for the institution long term is for me to step out. Um, and that's, that's got to be incredibly difficult. But I think we're at a point where these jobs are just too high stakes for folks to sort of muddle through. Well, and Aaron, to that point, I think one thing that I would add is that um, I recently was uh, chatting with a reporter and the conversation was about um, openings in higher education. And the comment I received back was, I was the first person to mention that these are thankless jobs because they are thankless jobs. You have to make sure that you're finding validation outside of the job, not in the job. And um, I thought that was fascinating that how is it I was the first person to raise it? Everybody else was talking about what great opportunities are coming back and what a great capstone on a career and all of these different platitudes that may have been the case but haven't been for a while. And I think we need to realistically set expectations. They are great jobs. Don't get me wrong. You can make a hell of a difference. There are so many things that are beneficial. But at the end of the day, you may not be liked. <laughs> How yeah. do we balance that? You're not going to possibly get the building in the speaker series named after you at the end, but you may have made a significant difference for that institution long-term. The other thing <laughs> that we need to have a conversation about, and I say this um, with all due respect to my colleagues, my former colleagues in the association world, we need to have a hard conversation about how we're training presidents because it is no longer the same world we're launching presidents into. And I know that the organizations and, and institutions that do this kind of training are, of course, seeing all of the things we're seeing. We need to iterate that training faster. Uh, there are presidents who have gone through these programs, have gone out into the world, and are doing truly remarkable work. They are the model for the next generation of presidential leadership. And, you know, we're fortunate to work with 
with a number of them. I want to take them, clone them and send them out to sort of talk about what you actually need to run an institution. Yes, we need to talk about legal issues and athletics and recruitment and enrollment, but it's bigger than that. And I think we miss the thing that pulls it all together in what we're currently doing to train academic leadership. And I think we aren't having that hard conversation of this is what the job is like. Are you actually suited to do it? I get you want to do it. I get you think you're suited to do it. But how do we get down to brass tacks and say either, yes, you have what it takes for this current environment or you don't. And I don't know how to move that into the training realm, but we need to do it quickly because I think we are seeing a real crisis in the continued development of the pipeline of the leadership that we need. And I'm going to piggyback on that, Erin, because Erin knows this is my hot topic now, um, and that's governance, right? So we also need to be training those boards because a president can't succeed unless they know that they have the backing of their board to do so. So we need the boards to be trained as well. And this does bring us back to our conversation and our topic. Um, Boards are the spectrum of society, right? You're there for a number of reasons, whether it's who you know, what you know, or how much money you have. Having said that, they do run the political spectrum. So as we talk about this as well, there is this public policy conundrum that some of our presidents get into, that they're doing what is in the best interest of their institution, they believe, and they may or may not have their board's support in doing so. So there's this this companion um, training that I think that we need to be thinking about, as well as asking some really fundamental questions about who can and should be on our boards longer term. What you're saying is something I think about a lot, and that is it does kind of feel like higher ed leadership, presidencies specifically, is like a campaign that never ends, like a political campaign that never, ever ends. There's no finish line until you leave that job. And so what that then creates, unless at least in my opinion, I used to work in politics in Ohio, is this idea that as long as you keep everyone happy, you are being successful. That doesn't work in higher ed because again, of the variety of audiences. Um, And so the expectations are gonna be so uh, different and it's just not possible to do it. And so what you're saying is something that I've been thinking about a whole lot when it comes to higher ed leadership. And that is about communicating your values and not your ego. Yes, yes. (laughs) Trademark, we just trademarked that. That's ours, the three of us. I have nothing to do with it, but I'm gonna go ahead and say yes. And it needs to go all the way back to the beginning of the search process. And and that goes back to Teresa's point about governance. You know, boards, their most important work is is around selecting presidents for for their institutions. And if what they are looking for, what the institution needs, what the board is looking for, and what the president brings to the table don't align, that's where you start to get into trouble. And that starts from day one. We've done a ton of work around introducing new presidents to their institutions. And what we really push the institution to do is not come up with a narrative or the story around this announcement, but to go back to where's the institution now? What does it need? How did the board translate that into a set of experiences and skills? Why is it this person? And what are we going to position them to do long-term moving forward? And I think you're absolutely right, Kevin. I think it is possible for a short period of time to keep everybody happy. But if you've ever spent time with small children, um, you know, you liken it to being on the bomb squad. And if you keep everybody happy for some period of time, you can do it. But at some point, 
you have to pay the piper. There are going to be consequences. That is going to come home to you. And, you know, the ice cream you gave the kid to keep them happy is going to result in a sugar crash. And at some point you are going to have to clean up those messes. It's That's a lot of metaphors that I have just packed into that. Enjoy every one of them. But it, you're absolutely right. You can only dance that fast for so long. And eventually um, you're going to collapse from exhaustion and there are going to be real consequences to that. And it's, it's unfortunate that the institution then gets caught in the crossfire. Holy shit. That is like 17 different mixed metaphors. That is <laughs> potentially a personal record, but um, sorry about so that. So I'm going to piggyback on something and this just exemplifies that again, Aaron's the nice one and I'm the yeller. Um, so the board is responsible for the hiring of the president. And I would say they're also responsible for the firing of the president. It's part of it. We use that term hiring and firing as if it's one word. And I think there's a reason for that. But what I also would say, and I think this is important and whether this is tied to policy or this is tied to just how we treat each other, I think there are a number of boards that um, transition out presidents in very um, unfortunate ways. And what they forget is that everybody else who searches that position, everybody who considers it is going to look to see how the president was treated and what their transition out looked like. It is exactly where this conversation starts and stops for a number of people. And there have been some amazing institutions that have had some really big fires um, of transition and they cannot recruit the caliber of individual that they need. And that goes back to how the board handled the second half of that responsibility. So I think there's a real key there that we need to be thinking about how we announce and roll out that president so that we put them on the track for success. And we also need to think about what graciousness looks like on the other end of that, because it's not about that person. It's about the long-term health of the institution. And that's often what we have to remind people of is that you're transitioning a person Let's do that as graceful as possible because we're trying to retain reputation for your institution long-term. Preaching. I love it. <laughs> it's so true though. I do have a question for you about like how often you see or work with um, college presidents or other uh, leadership level, cabinet level folks at institutions who actively participate in um the institution's advocacy? Like, do you help write testimony for state house um, hearings or like, does that ever happen? How does, do you see that often, if ever? We don't only because we step aside when it comes, I think there are a number of legislative experts that we would defer to. And there is a art to that, that um, language and how it is that you structure it and what it is that you say, who it is that you reference and how it is that you pull that conversation along. So we try to stay on the comm side nationally and in higher ed trades. Um, we have in the past uh, done, in essence, kind of speaker training for those who are giving testimony to Congress. Um, and that's really to make sure that we're thinking through some of their speech patterns and the way in which they present themselves which is different. They'll come to us um, having worked with their experts to get their, their scripts and what their key points are in advance. And we might tweak around the edges, but much more it's about the delivery of it um, if we're talking about something that's uh, specific to legislation like that. Okay. How do you prepare leaders for more like social, cultural conversations on campus or around campus? Can you talk a little bit about that? We have actually started doing some training with advancement and admissions slash enrollment staff 
around difficult conversations. And it, in a lot of cases, gets back to the point you made earlier, Kevin, about that divide between older, somewhat more conservative alumni and younger, more um, progressive, more activist, more engaged uh, prospective students. And we have worked there to try and help folks develop a skill set around listening, understanding what someone is coming to the conversation looking for. Is it just mm-hmm. I want to vent because this place is not the place that I knew and loved and and this experience doesn't resonate with my experience. Or is it someone who's looking for information? Are they someone we can tap to activate their networks if we provide them with the information and give them um, the talking points or the, the responses they're looking for? Will they then go share that information with their network and therefore sort of become evangelists for, for us? So we, we really do some work around those conversations. When it comes to sort of the bigger social, cultural issues that everybody is struggling with these days, we do advise presidents and senior leadership on how to have those conversations, how to come to them, as Tressa said earlier, authentically and openly. Again, it's the same kind of, of training and approach. What is this person looking for? Um, how can you respond to them appropriately How can you continue the conversation? How can you come to it with humility and openness and not shift to a defensive posture? And sort of how do you remove yourself from your role as the leader of this institution? We, you know, we work with presidents who say, well, these students come and they're so angry and they yell and they yell at me. And to Tressa's earlier point, that's the job. As president, you are the physical manifestation of this institution for their four years and potentially longer. You are going to catch all of the heat. The question becomes, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it in a productive way to move the institution and the culture and community within it forward? Or are you going to respond from a defensive position and say, these students should be more respectful and go on about your day and head off to the faculty meeting? That's where that that leadership pivot comes in, I think. those That's the difference between the president who's ready to meet the moment and the president who is not. And I also think that there are so many moments that a president should lead. And there are other ways where you need to think about, do we need to partner with others? So um, I have one president in particular that I always ask, are you the right person? And is this the right time? And thinking through what that means, um, especially when he wants to change the world. This is he thinks this is the moment. Is this the moment? And let's talk about that. And we have kind of put together some buckets for him to think about. Is this what I lead? Is this what we in higher education lead? So um, Pell is a great example for that right now. This doubling of the Pell, it's too much for any one institution to take on, right? It has to be the collective push. And we need to be thinking about what this looks like and how we can actually move the needle. Will we? I don't know. That's up for discussion. But that's one of those topics that this is an equity conversation that we're having tied to Pell. How do we make that case as succinctly as possible and with the greatest impact and in, in, in positioning. So am I the right person? Are we the right people? And then there are some topics um, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation that might be too big and too much of a hot topic for an institution or even a group of presidents to take on. And that's why you have associations. That's why you have third parties who support you. And sometimes you participate in those behind the scenes or you have, you know, advocates come out to in your support. Um, there are different ways to be thinking about this. And a president doesn't have to take on all of that. 
It's better understanding where do I use my political capital and where do I use the reputation and the heft of the institution as part of this conversation? Because I, you can't separate that out. We have some presidents who say, but I'm saying this as a private citizen. President, that doesn't exist. The moment you sign that contract, you are one and the same until you separate from that institution. And even still, you will be seen as a part of that institution. So you don't get that opportunity anymore. And you have to think about what the impact is for the institution with or without your participation. Mm-hmm. Aaron, I'm going to go back to a point you made just recently about the relationship between a president and the institution um, and the way that they handle things, right? That brings to mind um, when the University of Missouri was having uh, the hunger strikes and the football team walkout, et cetera. There is a report made done just after that. Um, I can't remember who did it, but they talked about how um, like the typical response from from higher ed leadership to situations like to sensitive situations on campuses. Um, and they kind of categorized it as like emotional issues, like things around race. That's an emotionally charged kind of issue. And the response is so typically to create a task force and having a logical response to an emotional situation is really not going to they're not going to speak to each other well because there are two very different things happening. And so this idea about like a rubric or some sort of templated response to things that like racism, sexual assault, all these other like really terrible things that can happen on a college campus are met with like a binder, right? Or some sort of like (laughs) other like work plan or whatever. And it just doesn't feel like the right kind of response. And so can you talk a little bit about like some of what you see that's more, maybe forward thinking in terms of responses to these kinds of situations from a communications point of view? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question, Kevin. And, and I, again, feel for the college president who finds themselves in the middle of one of these very emotionally charged institutions. We talk all the time about people who try and apply a rational lens to an irrational situation. When you come in and say, well, here's the workflow and here's the template and here's, the constituencies that need to be represented on the task force. And here's the external expert we're going to bring in to do a review that we may or may not publicly release. It is not surprising to Tressa and I, anytime we see that response, that this um, issue is going to continue to roil your institution uh, for as long as you continue to try and jam this emotional response into a very administrative box. The presidents that we see really succeeding in managing these kinds of issues on campus are doing a couple of things. One, they are making room for that emotion. They are sitting in that uncomfortable conversation. They are sitting in that town hall meeting or that town hall Zoom more recently. And we're not saying, you know, get up there and wear a hair shirt and be beaten about the head and and shoulders. But what we are saying is you need to make room for this emotion. This is an emotional response. And until we get through some of that initial emotion, it's going to be really hard to figure out what to do, to figure out what is going to feel responsive to those students or faculty or staff or whomever you're dealing with. We need to make room and we need to sit in those hard conversations for a bit. And then what we advise is you may or may not need a task force, but what you do need to think about is how you can be moving the needle on what needs to be done on campus in three big buckets, your short, your medium, and your long-term. Our students are going to come to us, you know, we, we sort of went through that period of time where we saw a lot of lists of demands and a lot of them rightly 
included a demand that the faculty be diversified, that we need to see more black and brown people at the front of classrooms. 100% agreed. We all know in academia, A, number one, the hiring process doesn't work like that. And B, number two, we haven't yet created the pipeline that makes moving that needle very easy. That's going to be a medium or a long-term goal. Our students don't always get that. But if we can pair that with some medium and short-term goals, that hopefully does enough to demonstrate good faith and commitment to our students so that they, they have the ability to wait a bit longer for the bigger stuff down the road because we have shown them up front, we're going to do the small stuff, we're going to build, and we're going to continue to move, move the needle on this. Um, and we see great success. The other thing that, that we encourage folks to do once they set up that kind of three-bucket approach is to be transparent. Let's put together a website where we are itemizing these goals, short, medium, and long-term. Here's who's responsible for them. Here's when you can expect updates. Here are the updates because we saw you know, a run of institutions that said, here are our goals and here's what we're going to do. And then the students went home for summer break and everybody went, oh, thank God we weathered that and never came back to that to-do list. So your students come back. They feel that their um, good faith in the institution, the administration has been squandered, and they are going to be twice as vocal and twice as aggressive when they come back, and they're right to be. So that's sort of the approach that we counsel folks to take and to be willing to be out in those spaces where you're going to be told that you're wrong and you're going to be told that you aren't moving fast enough. And in a lot of cases, the students are right. We aren't moving fast enough. And I think, Erin, the important part of that that we always stress as well is that your students are saying, this is how we feel today. This is what we're experiencing from the institution today. And we and we respond with, that's great. Our task force will get back to you in 18 months to two years. So yeah. you're telling those students for 18 months to two years, we are going to just let you continue to feel and experience the institution that way. That it's okay that you are having this experience that is less than ideal. We are fine with that because we need to allow our processes to go ahead and check boxes. And that isn't acceptable. Yeah. Students don't think it's accept acceptable. As a parent, I wouldn't think it was acceptable. We need to be thinking about how it is that we're saying that. So to Aaron's point, it has to be, this is how you're going to feel change today. This is how you are going to see change and experience change moving forward. And we have to be able to make that very relatable to how they're going to be looking for what progress and movement looks and feels like. And that's really where the, the authenticity comes back into this. This is where the language and the follow through is so critically important. And this is where the hard work happens. This is what we really mm. want for people to be talking about. So again, don't tell us this is what we plan to do. Tell us what you're doing. We see leadership assume a far more in-depth and arcane knowledge of academic administration and faculty administration. We assume everybody's reading the faculty handbook. Oh, no, it's just people like us. Um, but we expect students to understand the hiring process for faculty, and we expect students to understand the budgeting and the tuition setting process and revenues and uh, it's Where just, curriculum comes from, because we always hear, but we all know curriculum is the responsibility of the faculty. Correct, but we don't all know that. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Right. And in, in the worst case outcomes, we see presidents and leaders say to the students, will you tell us what you want us to do? <laughs> At which point I say, just hand in your business cards and go home, because that is 
A, problematic and B, pretty offensive to say to students, you're unhappy, you're telling us you are feeling X, Y, and Z, and we're going to tell you, you have to fix the problem. You tell us how to fix the problem. And so it's so frequent that we see these things go off the rails. And it's really rare that we see a president who is willing to just wade right into it and say, you're right. We blew this. We need to be better. Tell me how this feels to you, to Teresa's point. Tell me how you're experiencing the institution. Tell me where you feel we're coming up short. I'm going to go do the work with my team to, in a reasonable amount of time, come up with a roadmap forward. I'm going to bring that back to you so we can vet it together. We're going to agree on some goals. And it's my job to make sure that this institution is responsive to that that list of things we need to do. It's rare to see everybody hit those marks. Some folks are really trying, but we need to be better in that space. I just want to say, um, I think that this part of this conversation, your point around making space and being more urgent in in the response from a leader. Uh, There's a great book by a man named Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. And in that, he talks Mm -hmm. about getting proximate. And the idea that I understand the the value and the function of having a bunch of layers of people between a president and students. I understand how that works. However, there are times when that space needs to shrink. Because in order to truly understand the weight of pain and joy for that matter, you have to get as close to it as possible to understand what the motivation is behind it or the energy that is behind it or what created it. And if presidents aren't willing to go into the space, step into the square and say, tell me what you're feeling, there is no real way to truly understand, empathize, sympathize, whatever it is, what is happening for the people who are on their campus, who are in their care. And so I love this idea of being more urgent and having these three buckets. This is how you're going to feel change today. Here's what's next. And here's how you'll experience it for people who come after you. Because otherwise, people have an unfinished situation once they graduate. Like, they're still thinking about the way that they felt when they left right. your campus or lived on your campus. And we don't want that to happen because there's a whole alumni operation that has to kick in after they leave. And, you know, we got to fix those. So I just wanted to say that. it's. But, it but I want to piggyback on that, though, Kevin, because um, quite often we experience a number of administrators who are trying to create uh, protections around a president, right? They're trying to make sure that they're um, not putting them into difficult situations or uncomfortable situations, that they're making sure that the brand of the president stays presidential, right? And we talk about that all the time. How do you stay presidential? That's a little bit different in this case, because to your point, you have to be able to interact with others and feel it. And quite often, that's where we see colleagues across the country and in a number of different positions say, ooh, let's not have the president go to that. Ooh, let's then send student affairs instead. Ooh, well, why don't we make sure that we like limit that to 10 minutes and no more, right? And you can't have the building of a relationship based on the what we're not going to do and the time limits. And that's where I think we also have to be thinking about um, what is a safe amount of vulnerability and what can we gain from that vulnerability in that moment? Because I do think we do have a responsibility to make sure that we are thinking about uh, what the reflection on the institution will be. And we don't want to put our pos- our presidents in positions where they will there is um, longer-term harm to the institution, but there is a middle ground there that quite often we never even try to Um, embrace or encourage because of the what-ifs. And that's where I think this is a much different time and place in presidency, to go all the way back to Aaron's points, than we had previously. This is so great. I'm having so much fun. 
I have another, one more question. I don't. I want to be super respectful of your time, um, but I do have a question about that. Kind of loops back around to um, the way we opened this conversation, and that is: Is it possible for the brand of a state to be separated from the brand of a university? Ooh. Just in your own opinions, it doesn't have to be based in fact. Like, just what do you think? That's such an interesting question. I think maybe. <laughs> Here you go, trying to please everybody. Right? Is that is that I'm our gonna say for yes. Twitter? I'm gonna right I'm gonna go out strong. I'm gonna say yes. Um, and, and I think it's because we see some institutions that are just doing, so here's my Pollyanna coming out. We see some institutions that are just doing <laughs> such amazing work and it is recognized and it is appreciated. And students understand what what is in sometimes, what isn't isn't in the control of the institution. And they're looking to that institution for its opportunities. And I think this is where we get back to the very beginning of, of the conversation. And that is, Students have to understand to separate those two brands. What am I going to get from this experience, from this education, from this opportunity? And that doesn't have to be one and the same as the state. That you, it is a four year experience. And so you can choose at the end of that four years if you want to stay in that state or you want to go elsewhere. And this doesn't have to be um, one and the same. This is where we really see some of the students who are creatively thinking about where they are and what the opportunities are and what to learn from this moment, separating that out for us in a lot of ways that we can learn from. So I don't think it has to be one and the same. I don't think it is one and the same. And I think we work with so many institutions that you could put them in any state and their brand is so strong. It's not tied to location. It's tied to mission. And I'm going to be my deeply cynical self um, and say, I think that separation is far easier and potentially only possible for an elite brand, for an elite institution. I don't know. When I, I, I maybe um, I I hear what you're saying, Aaron. When I was looking at colleges, it was like right around the time of Matthew Shepard. And was I looking yeah. at colleges in Wyoming? No, I wasn't because I don't know. Would you I've have been looking been. at colleges in Wyoming before that? Uh, I was looking all over the place. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted, but I know I wanted to be safe. And it's just one of those things that I was like yeah. stuck in my head. And for right or wrong, I know that the entire state of Wyoming is not the, like the person who, the people who killed Matthew Shepard, but the idea stuck in my head enough where I was like, mm, that state is not going to be for me. And I'm wondering about like what people see in the news about a place, right? When it comes to these legislative uh, efforts and moves, Joe Arpaio and, and Eric, like all these things. If a young woman, is sexually assaulted on campus and she gets ends up getting pregnant and she's in a state where she can't um, make a decision for her own. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And um, I was just, it's just a question I all, I ask uh, clients sometimes when it's appropriate. Um, and something I think about often when it comes to policy versus higher ed. Yeah. I mean, to take it a little bit broader. So my first job um, out of college, I was an admissions officer for my alma mater. And one of my travel territories was Long Island. And I would go to these college gyms and set up my card table next to Drexel and Duke and all of these other institutions um, who were alphabetically proximate. And people would come up and see the, you know, the, the standard pretty picture of the fall foliage and the young, carefree, delightfully diverse undergraduates wandering across campus. And they would say, oh, this is pretty where is this? 
and I would say New Jersey. And the first response from a large swath of students was always, I would never go to New Jersey. But you know who didn't have that conversation is the rep at Princeton. Princeton's brand is outsized when compared to the, the brand of the state of New Jersey. My small liberal arts institution didn't have the luxury of having a brand strong enough to overcome the perceptions of the state. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're absolutely right when you talk about policy and legislation. But I also think these young people who are looking at institutions, a lot of them are activists or more engaged than certainly I ever was in high school. But I have to believe that this is only one in a mix of factors. And but for the very rare student, it isn't cracking the top five of factors, I would guess. I agree. Uh, but that's sort of that's the position I come at it from having attempted to shill for a an institution that was not Princeton in a state that definitely was New Jersey. <laughs> and and so this is where I think we may have disagreed on what we did disagree on the original point, but I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna agree with you now and say I don't think it's the top five because again, I think it's opportunity and more importantly, it's cost. So I mm -hmm. am that um, everybody's friend who has coffee with everybody's college or high school junior and senior and give them thoughts on colleges. And so they'll say, oh, I would never go to college in X, Y, or Z state. And as we kind of unpack it, it's because they're still thinking in state, right? They're still thinking 50 miles from home. So I really just limited it to a state in our conversation that they had been considering at the start of that conversation. And number one is going to be cost. So I think that even as we have these conversations, it is a luxury for students to be able to put that on their list period. And it's an even bigger luxury for them to have it in a place that influences their final decision. Yeah. Aaron Hennessy and Teresa Valerio Parrot. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot from both of you. I enjoyed chatting with you. I think there's a lot more to be said and uh, written uh, and recorded uh, in this space. And I'm looking forward to seeing how um, higher ed leadership can evolve to meet the moment um, as uh, you both so eloquently stated earlier in our conversation. These are Divided issues by. that we care passionately about. And these are the conversations that that we are having all of the time about what we hope to see in an industry that that we very much love and that I am comfortable saying changed both of our lives as students. Um, and so we're delighted that you're hosting these conversations, Kevin. And um, I wasn't joking earlier when I said, we'll come back whenever you want, because there's so much to talk about here, about where we're meeting the moment and where we aren't. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2.